Amen. I'm uh, going to turn 48 tomorrow. Uh, I'm glad you guys are excited about it. Uh, the years seem to be ticking by, and I, I was just this morning visiting with somebody and telling them in two years, Carolyn and I will have our both have our 50th birthdays and our 25th anniversary in the same summer. So that'll be quite the summer. A lot of partying at the Ryer House. I, I, I think back to where the time has gone, and uh, and I remember very vividly something that happened during a season of my life uh, right after college. I, I got my first job working as the a marketing director for a very small courier service, courier company in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, this was 1987, 88. So it was in 1988 is when I was, you know, full-blown working at this place. And uh, my boss there, the guy who owned the company, was a Christian. And uh, his Christian community was in a particular church where a lot of the people had gotten uh, riled up and excited about a book that came out that year. And the book was titled... 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. It was published uh, by a guy named Edgar Wisenant. And, uh, and uh, I, I remember vividly uh, someone from my boss's church coming into the office one day, and, and he knew I was a Christian, and he goes, are you excited about the Lord's return? And, and I you know, was vaguely familiar with what was going on around us culturally with this kind of end-of-year, end-of-world prediction, and so I said, sure. You know, I really wasn't completely clued into how enthusiastic he was about what he believed was the imminent return, the almost now return of Jesus. And, and I thought back on that moment, obviously Jesus didn't come back in 1988, and I could have used that as an opportunity for gain because I could have gone around to all the Christians in his little circle and said, listen, since you're not going to be here in six months, can I have your car? But it didn't quite work out that way. Now, interestingly enough, the guy who wrote the book, Edgar Wisenant, uh, recognized that he'd made a mistake. And so the next year, he corrected it and wrote another book that didn't sell quite as well. It was 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1989. And obviously, when that didn't take place, he wrote a third book, if you can believe that. Uh, but you've got to admire a guy who recognizes his previous failures, um, this one came out in 1993, and the title had changed, but it said, 23 Reasons Why a Pre-Tribulation Rapture Looks Like It Will Occur in 1993. In other words, he went from it's going to happen to it kind of looks like it. And it made me think of like a, a kamikaze pilot who like packs a parachute. You know, he was just making real sure that if something went wrong, you know. the old There was a comedian named Stephen Wright that used to quip... Uh, why did kamikaze pilots wear helmets? You know, just a, just a thought for your Sunday mornings. It, it's neither here nor there. You know, the uh, uh, more recently in, in the Southwest, Harold Camping, who is this guy who owns 55 Christian radio stations, had uh, taken a second shot at predicting the end. His first prediction of the end of the world failed in 1994. So he took at least almost two decades to recalculate and then uh, really put his money where his mouth is. Harold Camping actually bought um, billboards in 6,000 locations in the United States to say Jesus is coming back on May 21st, 2011. Obviously money not well spent because Jesus didn't come back on May 21st, 2011. But uh, lest you think it's just the crazy Christians, 
Uh, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually hold the world record for missed predictions. Uh, they have a grand total of nine times when their denomination has officially predicted the end of the world, the last being in 1984, and then they said they're out of the prediction business. And I'm thinking, you think? I mean, the first eight failures weren't evidence that you weren't getting this thing right. You thought you'd take a ninth shot and then decide, you know, oh, we're not very good at this. Uh, it isn't uncommon all throughout history, uh, people have done this type of conjecturing about the Lord's return. Uh, there was a speculation, the, the Jewish historian Josephus actually records that um, in 44 AD, just 11 years after Jesus was crucified, that there was a, a Jewish rebel who claimed himself to be the Messiah and took 400 or so people into the desert. Then it turns out that the Roman government beheaded him out there. Uh, more relevant to our study today is that, as we'll see a little bit today, and then Paul comments on it a lot in Second Thessalonians, is that this group of Thessalonian Christians, the, the, the family of believers that we've been studying for the last couple months, and we will conclude studying in this fine month of June, uh, they had gotten word that Jesus had come back and some of them had kind of gotten a little freaked out. You know, and so this sort of rumor was in, you know, in 54 A.D., was already disturbing Christians, and the, the entirety of the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. This was a relevant part of their world because it was chaotic, and because Jesus had talked about the end times, and Paul had taught about the end times. And so there is this sense in which the people were confused, and, and maybe even in some ways that would be uh, expected. And it's really easy to kind of lose sight of Jesus' words, though, in the middle of maybe your discovery or your times of reading the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye or something like that. Jesus said this in Mark 13, 32, and 33. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. Now, in spite of the fact that that's a relatively clear uh, de declaration, up to this day, Christian TV networks still are filled with these so-called end times experts who are making a pretty penny, mind you, selling their wares to get you to freak out about the fact that Jesus might come back next week. And they try to construct these amazing grids through which they read historical events and today's events and the next thing you know, they are completely off mission. They're not doing what they should be doing. They're not doing and directing the people of God to do what they're doing. They're like obsessed with the study of the book of Revelation and the end times. And this is sort of kind of what was sidetracking the Thessalonians. We read about that last week, that the Thessalonian believers were some that were so into their eschatology, it's the official theological term for the study of the end times, that they just quit going to work. So like, oh, Jesus is going to come back. And you have to admire that kind of commitment. I mean, if you thought Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, would you go to work? I mean, I wouldn't. I'd get my kids. I'd take them out of school. We'd hang out together. Maybe I'd share Christ with the people at Subway. I'd do something, but I, I darn sure wouldn't carry on like it was like any day. You know, I think if you actually knew the day of Christ's return, it would significantly shape what you did that particular day Jesus says that we can't know. So there's this overarching sort of sense that we need to be aware, but we're not going to know 
And in our text, it even says and echoes the words of Jesus that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Any of you ever been robbed before? They don't tell you when they're coming. (laughs) That defeats the purpose. They come when you least and don't expect them to. Historically, there has been an affirmation of this doctrine of Jesus' return, the Nicene Creed, which we cite quite frequently here at PRISM, and maybe you knew it growing up in church, that declaration of the church from the 4th century A.D. He will come, speaking of Jesus, in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he's worshiped and glorified. He's spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Apostles' Creed, a little bit clearer on this particular point. On the third day, the Apostles' Creed said, He rose, Jesus. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. These are important things to acknowledge in the church historically, the Orthodox Church, uh, churches of Roman Catholic heritage and Eastern Orthodox heritage and Orthodox Protestant churches have all concurred that uh, we are going to be resurrected bodily, not just as spirits, that we are physically going to be born into new physical beings and it's important because we'll we'll understand why that in a bit as for when jesus is coming back and what scheme you want to read the book of revelation particularly revelation chapter 20 we'll we'll i'll give you some overview of that in a couple of weeks when we get into second thessalonians but i would say uh most important in all this is that there are in my view, and of course the view of the network of churches we're a part of, we have a doctrinal statement, we have a commitment that we've made, and our network of churches has declared that there are a handful of positions that are equivalently legitimate or biblically faithful, and while one obviously is going to be right when it's all said and done, we, we just don't know which one that is. We do believe that somebody in these myriad of opinions about when Jesus and the order in which the events of the end times will take place, which is really the debate in our circles, that somebody's going to be right when it's all said and done, but we have no earthly clue. (laughs) And sometimes uh, it's an unhealthy thing to spend a lot of your time obsessing over it. In fact, this is the statement of our network on the end times. We believe that divisive and dogmatic certainties surrounding particular details of Jesus' second coming are unprofitable speculation because the timing and exact details of his return are unclear to us. And so my question, your question should be, um, should be, why then all the discussion of the end times? I mean, why even mention it if we don't know when it's going to happen and we're not supposed to obsess over it? There is a purpose for this in Scripture, and in our passage today, we can see why. The Thessalonians needed an important dose of encouragement and they needed this to be an encouragement rooted in a reality that Jesus was in fact going to consummate history one day. In the context, as we've said on a number of occasions, Paul originally wrote the Thessalonians 
because he'd gotten word back from Timothy that they were doing well spiritually and he was really jazzed about it. They were worried they'd planted this church they had to leave because there was persecution. They were concerned that the people they'd left behind were suffering and were going to abandon their faith. And when they sent Timothy back to discover what was going on in Thessalonica and they found out to their joy that the Thessalonian Christians were deeply rooted in the truth and the spirit and they were persevering amidst all these severe trials and they weren't just being a blessing to each other but to other churches in Macedonia. And it's, it's like a church planter's dream come true. This past week I uh, went online and I was following the, the church that Carolyn and I were a part of in Florida, and and ten years ago this year, uh, we were a part of planting Centerpoint Church, and it's so thrilling for us to see them building their building and and actually another building. We already had one building built before we left, but they're they're moving into an entire new um, sphere and an entire new season of ministry, and for us that's that gives us great joy just to know that the Lord was in the work, that it was rooted, that it was doing well. And this was why Paul, when he got the information from Timothy that things were going well, when Timothy came back with this report, he immediately blasts out this first Thessalonians letter to say, I'm so glad to hear this. Part of this experience, though, was Timothy came back to Paul and said, they need some clarity on a couple of things. There are a couple of issues that are going on in this church. And so while you know, you're addressing them on a variety of topics, including your own joy. There are a couple of substantial questions these folks have. One was related to some false teaching that was taking place in them about the fate of Christians when they died and and, and how these things were sequentially going to take place and whether or not in fact Jesus actually had already come back. And this was the second piece was not just you know, explain to us whether or not the afterlife is real physical or spiritual or whatnot. The second piece was, is it possible that you can be a Christian and be left behind? You know, is it possible that this will be a surprise to anyone that you could actually hear about it in the news? Today, Jesus came back. Uh, If Jesus comes back, he's not going to need a press agent. And Paul declares this and, and teaches on this. And in our context, there are two very specific reasons why this imminent return, this soon return, this return that we don't know when it's going to happen, this sense that it could happen any day, this, this belief that it will come when we least expect it, there are two reasons why this is encouraging to us and it was encouraging to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were under persecution, they'd experienced some false teaching. There was an immature euphoria about the end times that produced sort of an ethical and spiritual and missional lethargy. So the first thing Paul does is encourage them in this last portion of chapter 4 and then the first portion of chapter 5 of the book of Thessalonians. And it's probably important to note for those of you who don't know you know, when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't put little numbers next to things. Uh, these came later, all right? In the original text, this is like a paragraph upon paragraph. It would be like a letter you'd write to a friend. 
and for cataloging purposes and for recording purposes and for referencing over the years church fathers uh, wrote in and the scribes wrote in numbers and chapters and so sometimes you can think well why is why did why are we studying from the 13th verse of chapter 4 through the 11th verse of chapter 5 it's because that was really one complete thought and we know this by the structure of that section of the text We know this because there were two separate indicators to tell us that Paul was addressing us and that this subject of the return of Christ was supposed to give us encouragement in two specific areas. And the first is this. We're we're to be encouraged that we will reunite with our friends. Now, what you see is, and I want you to recognize this as we're reading through both sections of these texts, is there's going to be an admonition not to see, feel, think like others. And as a result, he's going to say, I want to encourage you to share with each other, to encourage each other about the reality of the Lord's return. So twice Paul's going to say, I'm going to contrast the way you should live with the way others live. And then he's going to say, I want you to remember the return of Christ and this be a discussion piece amongst you all. All right, and this is is what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. We're in verse 13 of chapter 4. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So right there is your first piece. All right, they're saying the, the object here is that you and I wouldn't grieve like others who have no hope. So his concern, his reason for bringing this up is because There was in the Thessalonian church, as there is in some places in our world, Christians who when somebody they love dies, they begin to be sad to a level where they actually think they're never going to see this person again. There was a lack of clarity in the understanding of the Thessalonians about what was actually going to happen in the afterlife? And am I going to see somebody? And are they going to be the same person I knew on earth? And, and, and how am I going to know it's them? Or am I even going to see them? And there was all sorts of strange teaching, and there's still all sorts of strange teaching. It's imperative that you and I recognize that, that Paul is saying that you and I shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope, but he isn't saying we shouldn't grieve. There is a healthy biblical way to grieve. If you lose somebody who you love, it should make you sad. If it doesn't, there's probably something wrong with you psychologically because you you should or you're just so distant from people emotionally that you've guarded yourself against the potential pain that would come in relationships. And I can assure you that my experience has been that the more you're invested emotionally in a relationship, the more when that relationship is interrupted or harmed in some way, the the more difficult it is emotionally and the more you're going to tend to grieve and grieving the loss of a loved one is is not a bad thing grieving the loss of a loved one with no hope that you're ever going to see them ever again there's no hope that you're ever going to be face to face and carrying another conversation with them this would be an unbiblical grief we're told and reassured that jesus is not only going to come back But in the passage here, we're told that he's resurrected bodily, that this resurrection of Jesus happened. It was a physical bodily resurrection. And that when the end times come, our physical beings will be resurrected. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died and are in graves. And you say, well, how does that work? What if they're, you know, cremated? 
what we know is the dust of their ashes, according to Scripture, is going to be reassembled into this glorious, eternal, physical body. We are not what first century, uh, first century heresy that pervaded some of the thinking in some corners of the church. It's called Gnosticism. There's this idea that, we, that the best part of our body is spirit and that our flesh is crude and evil. And Jesus, the Father, created this world and said, this is good. He created the physical world and said, this is good. Read Genesis 1 if you're wondering. Genesis 2, the Father saw what he created and it was good. So Jesus is not saying flesh bad, spirit good. He's saying that one day we are going to be restored to the physical beings that we were in the garden before the fall. And there's speculation about whether or not we're going to populate as these physical beings a heaven, a new heaven, or a new earth, or both. Who knows? What I can tell you is that we are reassured that we are going to physically see one another again. Verse 14, for since we believe Jesus died and rose again, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you from a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with with the cry of command, I'm sorry, uh, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The, uh, The reassurance for these people was real because some of their friends and family were suffering persecution there was the real possibility some of them would die because of their faith. Also, death, you know, in a, in a world that doesn't have the health care that we have and the understanding that we have, you know, people died lots younger. There was considerably more grief and suffering. And so there's a sense in which he was saying to them, I want you to take comfort. I want you to be encouraged by the reality that one day you will physically physically see those whom you love encourage one another verse 17 then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will be with the lord we're called to encourage one another with these words we're not going to grieve like the world a hopeless grief one of my favorite parts in this passage um, is is about the hope that is ours in Christ and the hope that we have that Jesus is going to come. And, and for me, when I think about the word hope, oftentimes I think about hoping that I get something really cool for my birthday or hoping that things work out in, with my children and their choices in life. You know, I find myself a lot of times, you know, thinking of hope in those terms. But when we talk about biblical hope, it's, it's a, an, a, an assurance that something is going to happen and that giving us a sense of hope, it bringing relief to us. Summer break is almost here. And for me, that gives me hope because that means I get to see more of the lovely Carolyn Ryer, my wife. She's a school teacher. She gets months off during the summer. That's a kicking arrangement, I got to tell you. Looking forward to retiring one day and Carolyn continuing to work and then being able to see her two months on the summer. 
No, but seriously, I, I, I really, I, I can sense it in her when she's closing in on the end times. I'll pick her up from work, the end times. Uh, the, the end of school, which feels like the end times. I, I'll pick her up from work, and, and there's a little bit more of a bounce in her step, and she'll go, two more weeks. <laughs> when, you know, she'll start counting down. And, and it, what it does is it, it gives her an enthusiasm. She even says the kids begin to act differently. We had a teardown day today. We took stuff off the wall. And do you remember that feeling as a kid? That, you know, the teachers were, there was less going on in the classroom because you could tell we're winding this bad boy down. It's about time for some summer break. That sense that it was going to happen changed your disposition. It was a reality that was coming and it changed the way you literally felt. And this is what Paul is after. He's saying that you should know hope. You should know encouragement. This resurrection is going to happen. It's going to happen because Jesus has saved us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, the apostle Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus, in him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This spirit that lives in you and I, the Holy Spirit of God, is a deposit that guarantees, it absolutely assures you and I that one day those whom we've lost, friends of ours whom we uh, lost in tragedy or just in old age, that people that we loved and no longer are near, we're going to get to see them and we're going to get to spend eternity with them. And this is supposed to encourage you and me. And this would be the reason that we should, at the very least, talk in a general sense about Jesus is coming back. Our world is not the end of the story. This is 80 years, 90 if you're in really good shape like my wife and her family. Uh, My family, we get to 80 years, it's good news. Eternity is eternity. I mean, it's considerably longer than 80 years. Do the math. We're to be encouraged that one day we will reunite with our friends. The second piece of this in verses 1 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5 is that we're to be encouraged that we'll receive mercy with the Father. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So here's the contrast. So then let us not sleep as others do. Now earlier in the passage we saw that we weren't to grieve like others do and now Paul's saying, I don't want you to sleep like others do. Now, in the next verse or two, he's going to use all sorts of metaphors, and he's going to mix metaphors. And, and so it can get confusing. You can think, is this a passage about drinking? You know, you can read this thing and go, see, we're not supposed to drink any alcohol at all. That's why we use grape juice in communion. That's not what this passage is about. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having, the, having on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, these passages are effectively saying, 
we're not supposed to be people who live in a fog. Have you ever been awakened in the middle of the night and you can't remember or you're not sleeping really hard and then you can't remember like what day it is? Sometimes I've, had, I've slept so hard and I'll, I would get up and, and I can't even remember where I am. I'm like, where am I? <sighs> I mean, that type of stupor. It's the same thing if any of you have ever, as I did in my wilder, younger years, been hammered before, drunk. It's the same thing. You, you can't even remember where you were. It's like, uh-huh. People ask you questions and you're just like, huh? I mean, you're never dumber than when you're drunk. And never more foolish in my case because almost everything that bad that ever happened to me as a teen and a young person was related to alcohol use in some way. So I guess you could look at these verses and say, one more encouragement to not be drunk, which is obviously a command in Scripture. But the point of these metaphors is to say that you and I should remain alert that the people of our world, those who walk without a knowledge of Christ or in a relationship with Christ, they're walking around as if they're in a fog. They don't see things the way they really are. It's like the world is dark and they're feeling around in the dark. And God is saying, we're not dark. We're not in the darkness. We're in the light. Open your stinking eyes. We can actually see. He's saying that you and I are, if we're the children of God, need to reflect on the reality of the return of Christ and its soon coming and its imminent coming. We need to reflect on that because it will keep us sober. It will keep us alert. It will keep us aware of what's going on in our life. For God has not destined us for wrath, it says in verse 9, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So once again, you see, this is what I'd like to do is contrast the way you're thinking, feeling with those who don't have any hope and don't know Christ. And then I want you to spend time making the discussion the affirmation of the return of Christ, part of your conversation because it will cause you to be alert. This assurance is one that gives us encouragement too that we are properly investing our lives if we do so with pleasing the Father in mind. I think reminding ourselves that, you know, when you've given your time and your talents and your treasure to the things of God, that this isn't wasted resources if we do these things, we, we're wisely spending them amidst the ongoing realization that we're going to be in eternity with our Heavenly Father. Are you struggling or suffering in any way related to your faith? Paul would say you need to keep in mind that for all of eternity, you're going to be able to look back. You're going to be able to reflect and say, I invested my life wisely for Christ. Now, while you and I won't be judged guilty for our sins. The believer, it says here, is not destined for wrath. There is an additional thought that you and I have to keep in mind, which is to say that one day we will go over our lives and assess what we did with the things that we have. That is a certainty. That is a reality. You will sit with your heavenly father and he will go over, okay, what do we do with the invested life that you had, with, with the talents that I've given you? There will be an accounting. And in our minds, we have to be solemn about it in this life and realize that's important to remember as well. There will be an opportunity for us eternally to have a solemn joy to know 
I made some choices. I made some sacrifices along the way by the grace of God, and I'm able to spend my eternal time with God reflecting with joy that I was able to invest this life well. We need to encourage each other with this reminder regularly, primarily because we live in a broken world, and we are a broken people, and we easily forget that which was so clear to us at one time. This is why all throughout the Old Testament you can see the command from God to build little like monuments when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan and came towards Jericho before they moved on. You know, the Lord directed Joshua to have a member from each of the 12 tribes of Israel take a big rock out of the middle of the uh, of the Jordan River and they took these 12 rocks and built this monument so that they could tell their kids this is what happened here. Why would they do that? Because we live in a broken world and we're a broken people and we need to constantly remind each other you are not wasting your life spending money on your kids' Christian education. It's a good investment. You're not wasting your life uh, spending your time telling your family about Christ to have them tell you, shut up, we don't like you, you're a religious freak. You are not wasting your precious resources of time, of treasure, by helping others. Yesterday, there's a group of us that went and helped at the Door of Hope Mercy Ministry here in town, and that's two hours of our lives, minuscule spat of time, well invested. It gives me joy to be a part of that, and then for eternity, we'll have the joy of knowing that we did these things for the Lord. One other reason, in addition to having a a broken world in which we live, and you see this here in the text, and I want to point it out because it's important. One other thing we see is a reference to the need to put on spiritual armor. He says in verse 8, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the spiritual battle and placing the armor of God in our place and because he would say in that passage to the Ephesians, you know, the, the war we're in is a spiritual one and your enemy, the devil, wants you to forget some important realities. He wants you to remember some very discouraging thoughts that he's going to stick in your head and he wants you very much to, to kind of walk through life in a fog, not thinking that eternity is waiting for you and I, that we are going to live our lives in view of how we will look back on what we've done with this stewarded time that we have. We see in Paul's word this need to put on spiritual armor, including and especially the helmet of the hope of salvation. We don't need to fear God's wrath, but it is most certainly a gift of God to live in this reality that we will very soon, and for the 48-year-old in the room, each year's ticking by faster. I have had friends who died in their 40s and 50s. Any day I could be with the Lord, so could you. Not to mention that the return of Christ, this glorious event that would signal the end of the world could happen, we don't know when, could happen during our lifetime. There's certainly nothing preventing it from happening during our lifetime. These realities are supposed to be things that we encourage one another and build one another up in so that A, 
we won't be grieving like the people around us. And B, we will enthusiastically invest our lives in the things that will ultimately matter, the relationships we have and the kingdom of our Savior. I spent 20 years in the American South and uh, really only took out of it a handful of things I liked. The people, wonderful. The food, as long as it's barbecue, love it. Um, and I love NASCAR. Uh, go figure. Um, I'm a Yankee, love NASCAR. Don't like country music. Uh, I'm sorry if there are those of you who are big country music fans. Not a lot in Los Angeles. Not a lot of country music fans in Los Angeles. You may not be familiar, though. There's one great country music song that I think of whenever I think about the return of Christ, sung by now an actor who was more known as a singer back in the early part of the millennium and certainly in the 1990s, Tim McGraw. Tim McGraw wrote a song called Live Like You Were Dying. How many of you are familiar with this song? Three of you. Country people, sure. Midwest people. Well, this song, actually, I'm going to read the lyrics to you because when I... You know, I'm a, I'm a relatively emotional guy. I don't tend to get all corny and tear up at movies and videos, but I can't watch this music video without getting chills and, and from time to time, tearing up. Because the, the, the message of it is so important for Christians. It's so important for us to think in terms of what we are doing with our lives. He writes and, of course, sings. You can look it up on YouTube later. The song goes, he said I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about options and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end and how's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what you gonna do? And the chorus of the song is, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, I loved deeper, I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And then he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And there is a sense in which if you knew you were going to die, you would live this life with so much more vigor. You know, I definitely would skydive if I knew it wasn't going to, you know, absolutely kill my life insurance. But, uh, you know, because what do I have to offer my family but my life insurance at that stage of the game? But, I, you know, I honestly, what would you do? And this is the bridge of the song. Like tomorrow was a gift. And you got eternity to think about what you'd do with it. And what did you do with it? And what can I do with it? And what would I do with it? Would you spend your life differently if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, the apostle Peter writes this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then today I'd like to close with this verse in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, when Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be encouraged by this reference, by this discussion, by a communal commitment to reflecting on the reality of the end times. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us just enough information about the end times that we would be people who would look forward to the day when we get to see you face to face.